where the hell have you been? And welcome to the sitcom club returning from our winter sojourn. I am Hey Kanko. Joining me as ever, mid-Atlantic style, is your old pal Ocho. Mid-Atlantic style? I'm next to the Pacific. Well, you know what I mean. I mean, well, I, I, mean I meant transatlantic. Far, far away from What I mean is that I'm in the UK, you're in the US, as paranormal. So what's been happening? Where the hell have we been or anything or nothing or whatever? Well, I try to engage with the 21st century with mixed results. I watched some 21st century sitcoms from the US, in the US, and I enjoyed them very much. And then I tried to watch some British 21st century sitcoms and I ended up with nausea, loss of appetite, ringing in the ears, headache, vomiting, slight bleeding from the ankles. I haven't seen anything I have been watching nothing but general election programs for the past 11 weeks. I wrote a little book for Kindle. It's called Swing, A Brief History of British General Election Night Programming. It's got a lovely cover. So basically, I haven't really been keeping up with the comedics for the last few weeks or months. I have actually enjoyed a couple of 21st century things. One in particular which I enjoyed. I'm actually still halfway through it, even though it has just finished its run on BBC Two. Nurse of Paul Whitehouse. I enjoyed that. I've seen two episodes so far. Still got the rest of it to go. That's my review. Meanwhile, in the weeks leading up to our return, we have been doing a little bit of research. If you follow us on Twitter, and you should be, at the Sitcom Club, you will know that we actually uncovered one of the Sitcom Club Holy Grails. Many, many weeks ago, probably months now actually, I said, dear listeners, there is this sitcom with Felicity Kendall playing an American. It's called Honey for Tea. It's from 1994, and I can't find as much as a frame of it on YouTube. I'm very pleased to say that we are now in possession of the entire series. We've seen two episodes so far. We won't say anything about it just now, because we will be coming back to that topic. But it's not going well. In the meantime, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about... No Place Like Home, as was requested on Twitter. I don't know if we're naming requesters anymore. Oh, I think we should name and shame. Okay, Mike Scott, you know what you did, you dirty little man. And that's why we're watching (laughs) No Place Like Home, because, of course, the last few months has been the age of the excavation, the archaeological dig of sitcoms on BBC Two. What's been shown? To the man are born, Heidi High, Are You Being Served, In For A Penny, Pinwright's Progress... (laughs) I'm going to stop you there because you are rapidly heading towards making an almighty gaffe. The Afternoon Classics on BBC Two are fine selections, all of them. However, No Place Like Home has not yet featured on BBC Two. No Place Like Home actually was enjoying a repeat run on drama. Oh, oh, okay. Well, it's just what I know. We've seen more of William Gaunt recently than when The Champions was in its prime. Well, you might have... Sergeant Cork is watched frequently in this house. So let me just reiterate again. We want your requests. No, we don't! No, 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 no hold on, hang on. We want your requests. I reserve the right to do a Mike Nesmith on this and say, well, you go ahead, guys, but I'm not coming with you. Right. We want your requests. Tweet us your requests at the Sitcom Club. I'm going to say here and now, right now, that by and large, all requests will be acknowledged and dealt with. There you go. All requests, by and large, will be 
rubber stamped and will be processed. I'm not suggesting that, that, that Mike's done this in this case, but, you know, don't necessarily, you don't have to request Morris Minor and the Majors or whatever the bloody hell Morris Minor's Marvelous Motors. I wouldn't mind seeing that again, actually. Oh, my God. I didn't say Why I would enjoy it. I just never, said I wouldn't mind seeing it again. Just one episode just to satisfy my curiosity. It's not a sitcom, but I tell you what else I wouldn't mind seeing again. The Cut Price Comedy Show. I'm bailing on that one. We've got pretty strong constitution, haven't we? I mean, we've watched some shit. Even in the last few weeks, and particularly over the last two years, because well, particularly if it's old, uh, this whole attempt to engage with the 21st century was we had a little bit of an examination of are we too focused on the 20th century? And it kind of came to us that anything that has been broadcast in the age of the message board and then the age of social media, anything post web 2.0 has already been chewed over way too much and already discussed and everybody's opinions on these shows have hardened into quite strident stances which in some cases lead to warfare. Can I just emphasise something at this point? For anybody who's listened to the show for the first time, we've been going for two years now. started April 2013. All of the previous shows are available on the lovely new improved sitcomclub.com which actually Ocho made. I had nothing to do with it. But you'll find all of the Don't previous episodes on I'm there. Not, about 60. I'm not web literate. I had to use like pre-existing it's WordPress. templates. and Yes. All the previous episodes are on there. It's about 60-odd or so. I prefer to call them editions or shows, oh. as they are not episodes of an ongoing narrative. I'm not saying you're a bad person if you say episodes. I'm just airing my preference. Like a man on the front at Blackpool. Okay, so all the previous editions, they're all there, 60-odd. Now, the point is, if you've never heard the show before, welcome, first of all. And let me also emphasise something straight away. I actually think that this particular era has largely passed, although it hasn't entirely gone away yet. But I think there was a sort of period, I suppose you would say around about maybe, I don't know, late 90s through to maybe a few years ago, the era of the Talking Head clip show. You know, every Saturday night in Channel 4, that's what you had. On BBC, you had I Love The Insert Year, so and so on. All that kind of horrible, dismissive, pissing all over the past kind of attitude where everything's just the setup for a gag and so on. This show is not like that. Sometimes I will use an expression like I've just used just now. I'll say, oh, we've watched some shit. But let me emphasize that it's all in good nature. I am a sitcom aficionado. I absolutely love this stuff. Ocho, you are... I think obsessed is is probably not too strong a word when it comes to classic days of TV drama. Yes, I'm really only doing the sitcoms because you asked me to. So don't think that this is some sort of rehearsal for some god-awful stand-up comedy routine or anything like that. We absolutely adore the stuff that we're talking about, all of it. I don't think we'd actually sit for anything that we really didn't enjoy. Like you just said just now, Ocho, there are shows in the 21st century that you didn't enjoy so we're not talking about them because we're not just going to sit here and talk about stuff that we didn't like you're just waffling to avoid the fact that you did not enjoy there's no place like home and that surprised me because you're normally the one who likes the broad stuff the stuff that fits in the very traditional idea of what a sitcom was if you're making a commercial he said make it like a sitcom let's do a sitcom parody and it would be ronnie hazelhurst la 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 and then it'd be oh darling i'm in the kitchen and oh, oh every the kids are here and oh they never leave home do they there's no place like home feels like an advert that's pretending to be a sitcom it's so traditional it's kind of weird and i remember thinking that at the time 
but that could be me being weirdly precocious as a child. I used to think that Lenny Windsor was actually a parody of a dinner suit comedian style comedian. And of course he wasn't, I've since found out. He didn't mean to be. <laughs> he did his job. Look, it's bad enough that you're going to be tearing in to There's No Place Like Home and now you're wanting to shame Lenny Windsor. What's Lenny Windsor done wrong? He's gone out there, he's made people laugh. We're supposed to be the non-sneering, non-dismissive, non-postmodern thing. I'm saying that as a child, for some reason, I was quite precocious, probably to a very unpleasant extent. And when I was watching There's No Place Like Home, I thought, this is weirdly old-fashioned. Was that wrong of me? Or is There's No Place Like Home actually out of sync with 1984? What year did it start? It began in 83. Right, first of all, I just want to get this on the record, okay? You can't have a conversation about Lenny Windsor and not explain who Lenny Windsor is. I know that we talk about very niche subjects on this podcast, and we don't... But the average the... age of our listener is deceased. Number one podcast in Forest Lawn, baby. <laughs> we don't insult listeners by always sort of pointing out, now, of course, you won't know who that is, so let's give you a little sort of capsule definition biography here and there but like, like, come on I mean, the number of people who've actually seen the opening program of TSW you I can sir think of, are a dead splainer I can think of two people out of our audience who, who I know categorically have seen it but otherwise I think its viewership was limited and then he the went to the cut price comedy show that was where I became aware of him and he had kind of a I don't know if it was a perm or if just very naturally tight curls and he wore a dinner suit and it was very traditional, like you saw comedians on The Comedians. But this would be circa 1982-83, and I thought that he was dressed up like that to be deliberately in that mould. He wasn't. Because there was, was still her? an audience for that stuff. Just because it was vanishing from our TV screens at the bidding of a metropolitan elite... <laughs> I almost kept a straight face for that, because... <laughs> that audience was still there. Well, this now this is kind of relevant to There's No Place Like Home. Did you think that Lenny Windsor was one of the core players of the comedy store and that he was trying to subvert the light entertainment I don't know about subvert, from the inside. I thought he was playing a part. I thought it was kind of like a role that he was playing. And I feel bad now because it feels like I've put the guy down and I'm too busy singing to put anybody down. <laughs> so there's no place like home. It seems like everything that made young firebrands of the 80s angry about sitcoms because it was middle-aged and middle-class and middle-brow. Well, in a second, I'm going to refute this outrageous assertion of yours. Are you going to rebut, unless you've got some good evidence? I'm going to stamp out once and for all this outrageous suggestion that I did not enjoy No Place Like Home. Oh, okay. Good. But anyway, okay. So No Place Like Home, there are five series from 1983 to 1988 and principally stars William Gaunt and Patricia Garwood and they are Arthur and Beryl Crabtree and the series begins with them seeing the last of their children off to university or wherever the hell and so they've got the whole place to themselves and that stays like that for about the first quarter of an hour. Slowly but surely all the kids start to return home and by about the end of episode two they're all back home plus his daughter's, or one of his daughter's, husband. So, basically, the whole place is rather crowded. You've also got next-door neighbours. You've got Trevor and Vera. And the most famous name out of the cast, who now actually gets top billing, sort of Robert Lindsay style, on the DVDs, in the first three series, 
one of the sons, Nigel, is played by Martin Clunes. And as I said, this has just enjoyed a repeat on drama. Certainly would be a, a prime candidate for a future afternoon classics run or whatever it may be. And the first three series are available on DVD. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy No Place Like Home. If I hadn't enjoyed it, I wouldn't have persevered with it. I mean, how far did I get in with Laura and Disorder? What, eight minutes? <laughs> I do have a bit of an issue with BBC sitcoms of this particular era. Although, actually, this is a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier, but there's something happens to BBC sitcoms around about the sort of middle 80s and lasts until around about the middle 90s. And I'm talking about the actual visuals itself, about the colour, about the sharpness, about the overall definition, the overall appearance. Something happens that It's just... not the adoption of one-inch tape, is it? Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, there'll be people... Maybe there's somebody screaming right now the answer. And if you know, tweet us at the Sitcom Club. Let us know. Because I would like to know. I mean, I grew up obsessed with television, so... I was never really particularly good as far as like the specific technicalities, but sometimes I could just sort of put my finger on... Say, for example, if there was a football match that was being shown simultaneously on BBC and ITV, as you used to get occasionally back in those days, the ITV picture would be just slightly more colourful than the BBC picture, for example. It's just something... Maybe it is one-inch tape. I don't know what it is. There's just something going on. I don't notice it with... Terry and June, which was still in production at this time, all the way through to 1987. I don't notice it there. Terry and June, to me, looks like an old-fashioned BBC sitcom. But this show, for whatever reason, and when we looked at, for example, Mulberry, was a, as a classic example of that. And there's another show that we've just had a wee peek at from 1988. Won't mention what it is just now, because we'll save that for later on. But yeah, a lot of shows from that particular era, they just look so bland. They don't leap out of the screen at you. I'm getting that vibe with No Place Like Home. It needs some oomph, it needs some colour. If it had been a good old-fashioned LWT sitcom, I think it would have had a bit more oomph. So, the show itself... Because William Gaunt is fantastic. He's brilliant, and I know you're going to disagree with me on this. Not damning the rest of the cast with faint praise, but he is the one who is on camera most of the time. He's the one whose character is written to carry most of the episodes, and he's fantastic. There are certain characters who I've got a lot of time for in this show, and certainly Arthur William Gaunt is one of them. Yeah, I agree, he's superb. I really like Trevor, next door neighbour, Michael Charvel Martin. I think he's always good in whatever he appears, and he's been in all manner of things over the years. I suspect you're going to disagree with me on this, but I really like Martin Clunes in this, and I think that when Martin Clunes leaves at the end of Series 3 and is replaced by another actor in the role of Nigel from Series 4 onwards, I think it definitely loses something. I think that It's not Clunes that I don't aren't... like Martin Clunes. I don't like Nigel. I think the show would be better if it didn't have the children in it. You would have to find a different concept to hold it together. Oh, the children are horrible. That woman comes and there's some children's party happening, and she asks... Arthur, do you have any children? He says yes, and she's sort of talking about, oh, jelly and ice cream and pin the tail on the donkey. And then the revelation is, of course, haha, all of his children are grown-ups. And they patronise her. Nigel's the worst. I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's some sort of parody of famous five golly goshishness of childhood. I really just wanted her to turn the air blue and start stabbing him. She was not acting on information received she didn't know this person is trying to be kind to children and because that kindness has not hit its mark you're being abominable to her 
She's made herself vulnerable because when we are kind, we make ourselves vulnerable. This is part of the reason the internet stinks. You're not blaming Martin Clunes for the invention of the internet. No, he didn't invent it. He just wrecked it for everybody. You come along and you put this woman down. You see, you should have said, well, obviously we're not coming, but we could come to help. Or look, here's a fiver. Make sure that it's some really high quality jelly. Get him the expensive stuff. <laughs> Damson and pomegranate. All right. So we have a disagreement on this front, but I think... Martin Clunes is very good in the role. Actually, as far as like the, the sons and daughters are concerned, I think Nigel is actually the least of Arthur's worries. Okay, he's... What would you call him? Ladies' man? What's but, the name of but, the other son? Because I can think of one of Arthur's worries there. Yeah, the other son is Paul. Uh, and before and he's, got, he's got red hair and a moustache. And who else in this show has red hair and a moustache? Now, nah, we'll come to that. Let's list them all. So we've got Paul, we've got Lorraine, Tracy... Uh, Raymond, who's married to Lorraine, and also you've got Nigel, like I said. Now, Nigel, he's always, to use a rather quaint old-fashioned expression, he's always chasing the skirt, I suppose you would say. But he's not nasty, he's not horrible or sleazy or anything like that. It's just his ways, just like Doesn't that. Doesn't he cheat on them? Isn't he too tight? So, this man is a feminist villain. He's not Malcolm from Tennessee. Yeah, you see, you won't pick up on his foul, misogynistic ways. This is why we can't have a tumbler. Hang on a second. He's not married. Two timing is wrong. Yes, but it's not like he's taken the sacred vow or anything like that. So that's why he's in a different category from Malcolm next door in Teddy and June, because he's at it in the office and poor old Beatty doesn't know. Well, she actually, she sort of does know what he's up to. But anyway, you've got Paul, who is a bit sort of more down to earth, and he ends up actually becoming a father and with his partner and so on. And you've got Lorraine, like we said, who is... Hang on a bloody minute. <laughs> and the rest! So, Lorraine, she's prim and proper and what have you, and she's married to this tosspot Raymond. <laughs> and he, he really is. He's, he's yes. a pain in the arse, isn't he? And played very well by um Daniel Hill, who... Supposing sitcoms, I suppose probably most famous for Waiting for God a few years after this. Finally, you've got Tracy. She's a bit more sort of young and with it and what have you. And she probably listens to like Radio 1 Newsbeat and all that kind of stuff. So basically, they're always there. They're always getting in William Gaunt's way. They're always saying stupid shit like, you know, oh, shall we play a record? And, you know, they have arguments about what they're going to watch on the television. So that's the basic premise. You've got, like we said, you've got next door neighbours Trevor and Vera. And Trevor's Paul's father. He's not Paul's father. Why do they look alike? They look alike. They happen to look alike, but it's never. I mean, why did lo- Paul grow the same moustache then? Right. Let's just emphasise this right now. This is not some plot that we're talking about. This is just some nonsense that we've made up. This is not like something that's going to emerge over the course of series three or four or anything like that. Trevor is not Paul's father, but they do look a little bit similar. So quite often when you sort of I just of presume them, that every time Trevor came round, Paul just looked at his moustache and went, one day. Of course, Arthur has a moustache, but it doesn't look like Paul's. So that maybe just a little sign of rebellion from Paul. I will grow a moustache, but it will not look like yours. That's how the younger generation did it in the 80s. All growing moustaches, even some of the men. That's the level of humour on this show. You get things like, the children are revolting. He's trying. Yes, he is trying. 
Hey, now we'll come to the content in a second, but that's your basic premise. You've got five series of this. It doesn't really fundamentally change at any point over the course of the series. You have cast changes and so on, but there's no big sort of plot twist at any point. As far as the content is concerned, yes, it is very sort of it's twee. I think you would say that. I think that it's quite a safe early evening BBC middle class sitcom. Not going to frighten the horses. But it feels like a pastiche of that. Even The Good Life just occasionally had strange little revelations about the attitudes of the time, like sexual attitudes. There was a slightly political element. We could talk about James Burke's changes when we talked about The Good Life because of its suburban agricultural concerns. Whereas this seems to have been made... It's a weird one. And obviously it was massively popular. One, it runs five series. And when the end credits kick in, the audience starts cheering and whistling. This really found its audience. There were people who I I suppose liked the children are revolting. He's trying. Yes, he is trying. They liked sometimes knowing the punchline slightly ahead of time. And there's a comfort food aspect, I imagine, for some people. That's exactly what I was just about to say. It's a comfortable cardigan. It's not going to make you fall off your chair, rolling around, laughing your head off. But what I'm thinking is it's comfortable for middle-aged parents of grown-up children in that they're not really generational tensions. They're just funny misunderstandings. I just mentioned that at one point it's mentioned that Beryl's 46 and that's around about the same age that Beck is now. I don't know who Beck is. I told you off mic one time. It didn't stick. Is he one of, he's one of You've these? You've heard Devil's one Haircut, of... haven't you? No, what? I, I, what do you mean? That sentence didn't even make sense. You've heard the Devil's Haircut? What does not, that mean? Not the Devil's Haircut. <laughs> you are Arthur Crabtree, but you've been Arthur Crabtree since about... 1994. <laughs> I think Devil's Head hey. was 95. I think it came out ahead of Orderly. I stopped listening to modern music when they shook up Radio 1. You know, when it was no longer sort of Simon Bates and what have you, when they got rid of them all, then yeah, it just wasn't the same. And I tried listening to Emma Freud at lunchtime, but nah, it didn't happen. So yeah, so I. Just... I never listened to Radio 1. I think I listened to Radio 1 three times in my life. John Peel had number one cop in session once, and then he had Cornelius, and then he had Stereo Lab, and that was about it. Didn't engage with Radio One. Don't need to. Pop music was everywhere. I didn't need to go looking for pop music. I listened to Radio Two because that stuff only seemed to be ex- exist on Radio Two. You're the only person of your age group who heard the Cliff Adams singers on a Sunday afternoon because you'd been listening for the previous half an hour, not because you tuned in early for the top 40. I have three Cliff Adams singers CDs in my collection. Do you have any Mike Sams? Yes, I do. Excellent. And I also have some Beck. So anyway, what I'm saying is is that being 46 in 1980-thing is significantly different to being 46 now. Yeah, but it's not really, though, is it? I suppose not for you. Oh, the young people's music that was made 20 years ago. Let me throw something out there. And you can sort of bounce it around the park, so to speak, and see if you can score a home run. Is the conflict in No Place Like Home, is it really a generational thing? Or is it not just the fact that the house is overcrowded? But The house is overcrowded with people who are doing things that don't quite align with 
Arthur's view. They listen to Stiff Pigeon. They throw a party. And, of course, eventually Arthur finds peace with himself at that party. That makes it sound... That makes it sound like somebody slips him some peyote. <laughs> he, he, he went into the greenhouse. He enjoyed an experience which he would never actually relate to the rest of the family at any point. But all we know is that when he came out there, he felt like a new man. We haven't mentioned Vera. Remember when you said you caught a little bit of ever-decreasing circles once and it was Howden Hilda? You thought that this was a horrible, exaggerated, silly sitcom. Vera is that type of character, isn't she? Is that fair? I think that's fair. Yes, I think that's fair. I am going to drop a bit of a bombshell on you in just a moment. Because actually, I think this is supporting my argument that I don't really think that the conflict is principally generational because a lot of it tends to emanate from bloody Vera turning up from next door. She turns up at the back door. Does she even bother knocking the damn door? She just walk in? That's she the thing. She's the most... weirdly out of sync. It's found its level. It's all kids running around oh, and they're all grown up and oh, it's, Nigel's got 17 girlfriends in 17 different rooms and a burning sensation when he goes to the loo. And... <laughs> It's got a, That's a shady. moderately realistic level. And then Vera comes in and goes, I have a hippopotamus. Doesn't she genuinely at one point say that she owns an, a hippo? And I think a tiger is mentioned or some manner of big cats that you would not be allowed to keep in suburban England. She's supposed to be an animal lover and they're always making these allusions to how the house next door is full of all these wild beasts and what have you. Now, she asks some very, very pertinent questions. She says the most offensive remarks, sometimes remarks which... I mean, she actually alludes at one point to Arthur being a member of the Third Reich. Oh, yes! Yes! That's just not the kind of thing that you say to anybody. All he does is wants his house back. It's just, you know, can you go away and leave me alone for a bit? Does she do the salute? Does that goose steps or something? I don't think she quite goes that far. I thought she calls him Führer or something. Yeah, something like that, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm trying to learn German, so now my pronunciation's making me panic. It is an established sitcom trait that people can say and do things in sitcoms which otherwise, if it was a drama, for example, it could be a pivotal point in a drama. It could be a real sort of game changer. If it was real life, they are the kind of comments or actions that would cause you to have a serious rift with somebody, if not actually cut off all contact with them. And yet, in the parameters of the sitcom universe, according to each individual program, there are just certain things you can get away with. Now, Vera, for a sitcom character, she really pushes a bloody limit as far as that's concerned. I have no idea why they let her into the house. Trevor is a lovely bloke. God only knows how he puts up with Vera and all these damn animals. I'm surprised that he hasn't well, got yeah, Trevor, Trevor is the kind of person who can make what would be inoffensive. I'm sure sometimes he'll take a little pop at Arthur. But it's fine. It works within the fiction. Vera is insulting and also Vera is a racist. We'll come on to that. because that we'll, we'll Oh, you'll that kick that Ken down the road, won't you? No, no, no. no. We're, we're going we're gonna to approach Mind that head Führer. on. We're going to approach that head on. But I'm going to drop a bombshell now. Throughout the time, dear listener, that Osho and I were watching no place like home. And we watched episodes for all five series. <laughs> we didn't watch all five series because you could. No, we didn't. No, no, we, we didn't. We didn't go that far. <laughs> but we kept on saying, "Oh my God, here comes Vera." Now I'm just purely talking about series one to three at this point. We'll 
touch on series four and five later on. But every time Vera turns up, oh my god, here comes Vera. Oh bloody hell, what's she going to say now? And as you said, she's out of sync with the rest of the show and so on. However, I've got to say, and I'm sort of surprised myself a little bit here, series four, Vera is not seen. The character of Vera is sort of written out. She's sort of decided to go off and live with her sisters or some stupid shit like that. You know, the usual kind of stuff they do. You know, she buckers off to Australia or whatever. But then Trevor comes to the realisation that she's staying where she is for the time being, but he has effectively been left. I don't think it's handled with any pathos, is it? Not really. I mean, it's very surprising. I'm not expecting it to go lacrimose on us and try and suddenly rip away the mask of comedy and say, ah, something a little deeper going on here. But I expected just a little bit more of a quiet moment. But oh no, it's all the boisterous sitcom. Ha ha. Vera does return for season five. Different actress. We'll come on to that later on. Anyway, the point is about Vera. Series 1 and 3, Vera is played by Marcia Warren. Do you know what? I was actually missing Vera in season 4 and 5. As infuriating as she is, with her propensity to say things which are just out of this world, crazy outrageous, actually I find that she was a very enjoyable character to watch. Okay, put her in a different show, because as far as I'm concerned, she's walked straight out of Man's Best Friends. Okay, well... I'm going to actually hold this in your direction. You watched Vicious, didn't you? She's in Vicious, yes. Character of Penelope. Yes. So how is she as Penelope? Um, in, in that, she's always at a remove. She, I don't know if she's drunk or senile or on medication, but she's always the last to catch up on something, and sometimes she just comes out with non-sequiturs. She's not really Vera-esque. She's dotty. I take what you're saying by putting her on a different show, but... I think there's plenty of shows in which Vera could work. And as you say, in this show, and as we said, she is sort of weirdly out of sync with everything in here. But she's one of the characters that I'm paying the most attention to when she's on screen. As opposed to, for example, some members of the family overall who don't really grab my attention. You barely mentioned Beryl. Exactly. That's a really good point, actually. Yes. I mean, that's it's not very fair. But, yeah, Beryl doesn't really hold my attention a great deal. And she should do. She has the same haircut as I do. Need to make an appointment, really. (laughs) The people that I pay the most attention to in the show, William Gaunt, Martin Clunes, Michael Charvel Martin, and Marcia Warren. They're the people who hold my attention. So, as infuriating as Vera is as a character, I felt that season four was lacking. Season five, shall we just touch on season five just now? We're already aware before we start watching it that Vera is being reintroduced into season five with a different actress. It's Anne Penfold doing a Marsha Warren impression. She comes in, she sort of sticks a jaw out and, and tries to talk like Vera as we remember her. Doesn't look like her. And then later on, because was well, she going to leave Trevor again? Trevor and Vera have got back together off screen between series. They haven't decided to do a story arc of the reconciliation of... Trevor and Vera. But then she's isn't she about to leave him again? Or yes, or she, or she throws him out, doesn't she? That's it. She does. She throws him out and then he's now living with Arthur in the exceedingly crowded household. And Arthur and Vera have a little talk outside on film and she's not doing the Vera voice. <laughs> <laughs> 
So sometime between the location shooting and the studio session, so, yeah, can you do it a bit more Vera-ish? We've looked at the rushes and um, we think it's just going to confuse the audience. <laughs> Why not have her first line being, I'm Vera? <laughs> so are you shying away from dealing with Vera's no, let, let, let's, let's do it. Anti-miscegenation. No, let's put it out there. Okay. Because this was the episode. When I think of There's No Place Like Home. No, it's just called No Place Like Home. When I think of The Devil's Haircut, <laughs> I think of the episode that actually, I think it had letters on points of view. That's how I became aware of this controversial scene, because people wrote in saying, this is racist. We've got this recurring problem on the sitcom club of the R word, because... For most people, even for some racists, racist just means that you have this deep and active hatred against people of another race, and therefore, if you're not actually trying to frustrate their dreams and destroy them at every turn, then you're not a racist. It's a spectrum, and some of the stuff that gets condemned as racist is really just, if without wishing to trivialise anything, it's really just large-scale impoliteness. For God's sake, don't make that joke about my hair, my eyes, this particular aspect that I was born with. Just don't make the joke. It's annoying, and I get it everywhere. And the reason for being accommodating and conciliatory and using smaller words like impoliteness and insensitivity, if we get too free with flinging accusations of malice around, there's always a risk that there are going to be some people who just like this old stuff. They just like old comedies, old game shows that kind of thing, they get put on the back foot, they get put on the defensive to the extent that they will eventually start defending malice. And that's why on this podcast we're always at pains to point out that we're not going after people. We're a pair of timid centrists. We just like to look at what went right with these shows, what went wrong with these shows. This is something we think went wrong. So, for example, we've been watching recently 321 and Bullseye on Challenge, and there are instances there where the odd little gag has been cut out. And it's just because it's some sort of racial comment. That's all it is. It's just noting somebody's background and making a gag out of it. That's the kind of thing that you And we don't really have in. a proper word for it that puts it in perspective. We already knew that we were going to be looking at No Place Like Home anyway. But when the repeats on drama began there were some discussions on forums about this particular episode. Series 2, episode 5, The Mating Season, from October 84. It's an odd episode to begin with, because you've got this business for the first sort of 23 minutes or so. You've got largely a plot that concerns Vera and Trevor next door. Bits and pieces going on, and there's Martin Clunes turning up, and he's sort of humping the furniture and what have you, and all this kind of stuff. And then... About six minutes before the end, it suddenly introduces a whole new plot strand, and that then is the plot all the way through to the end. Tracy turns up with her new boyfriend, and her new boyfriend is black. Now, as soon as he's introduced, that's the punchline of the scene in itself, and then you cut to Arthur and Beryl, and for some reason, Trevor and Vera from next door, all sat in the living room, and the look on their face is as if they've just had the radio on and the announcer has said, this country is now at war. That's what it's like, isn't it? I mean, they're just Beryl, sat there yeah, ashen faced. kind of hugging herself, isn't she? And she looks really uncomfortable. Like this is something 
terrible it has to be dealt with. That's the first surprise. In a traditional 80s sitcom like this, the expectation will be for Arthur to be a little surprised, realise that his surprise looks bad, try and backpedal on his surprise, make things worse, and then the boyfriend just goes, it's nice to meet you too, Mr. Crabtree. Roll credits. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'd say so. Rather than a meeting of the adults to deal with this very distressing situation. A meeting of the elder folk of the village. we can't say that only white people have ever been in this house. It's what it feels like. We're not making any accusations that this was written by a racist. Just very surprised at the way it's handled. And it's also maybe a matter of staging. You could play that scene so it's just like Trevor and Vera have come round. They have shown their surprise and now Beryl and Arthur are in the situation of gabbling and backpedaling because everybody's kind of realised the surprise is wrong, but there's just something weird at every level. The I'm surprised it was written that way. I'm surprised it was staged that way. I'm surprised it was acted that way in, what, 1984. And then Vera says the thing that got the complaints on points of view and was not seen by viewers of drama. All right, now that's what I'm getting at. So first of all, let's explain what people have seen if they've been watching the show on drama, because otherwise it isn't going to make any sense. So there they are. They're all sat there. Oh, what would we do about this situation? And Arthur looks like he's just about to hit the sherry hard. And meanwhile, Trevor and Vera are coming across, I wouldn't go as far as to say Guardian readers, but they're coming across as if, well, we really should take a broad-minded approach about all of this, you know? And Vera, for example, says, I mean, I like colours. And Trevor says, blue is your favourite, isn't it? Then Trevor says, fact of the matter is, you know, uh, she's white, he's black, that's all there is to it. And then Arthur goes into this little spiel about how, in his view, sort of black and white are emotive sort of terms. And he says, let's rename it, let's say brown and pink and so on. And, you know, this is not something that we should be worrying about at all. This is nonsense. Come on, let's just get with it. And then... I mean, you could argue that that's kind of a reductive way of looking things. Just recently, a friend uh, posted on Facebook about... I think it was a university in Georgia that decided to advertise itself with a bunch of people running a race. And it's like, yeah, you can hit the finish line. And it just so happened that the two guys in front were white and then there was a woman behind them and then there was a black guy stumbling. He was way at the back and he was falling over and it looked bad. And so people were saying, look at this. Oh boy, what were they thinking? This hasn't come out right. Nobody was flinging too many accusations around and then somebody came along with, well, if we didn't see colour, this problem would go away. And of course that really started an argument because it's like, well, Yes, fine, if we got past it, but we're still living with the fallout of the previous God knows how many hundred years of things being bad for some people. We're not going to be able to just press a reset button on our attitudes. That's the argument. So the episode ends, you've got Tracy coming in, and she suggests that her boyfriend move in because he's having trouble with his flat. And then finally, you've got Martin Clunes turns up, and he introduces his newest girlfriend and she's from I suppose you say Southeast Asia and then Hong Kong program I ends. think he specifically says Hong Kong okay so then program ends now if you've been watching the repeats on drama that is what you saw now you know us on the sitcom club we do our research we dig deep and we found 
the entire episode in question. First of all, the transition from instruction of the black boyfriend to the living room, that's exactly as it appeared. It's when you then get to the conversation between Vera and Trevor that things start to go amiss. And when you were saying there, Ocho, about the term racist and how sometimes it doesn't, it feels like a little bit too strong and so on. Of course, the R word these days, didn't need to explain what it was, the R word is racist, but one R word that you don't hear anymore that you heard a lot in the 60s and 70s was racialism. And that is what you would say Vera's dialogue. That's a category that it falls into. We've already established that Vera is sort of obsessed with her sort of wildlife and her animals and so on and so on. And this particular line that she comes out with, it actually comes after this business about how, oh, I don't mind colour, and then Trevor says blue is your favourite, and that's where then the edit point is on the drama version. But she goes on to say, but, you know, I know a lot about natural history and what have you, and, well, you know, the species, they do tend to stay apart. That's the line that's really jarring. And you and I were talking about this off air when we saw this episode, and I think that we sort of had slightly different views about just how bloody awful it was. Because I was trying to sort of emphasise, it does actually sound horrible, and I'm not at all surprised that that line is exercised in the repeats today. However, you've got to bear in mind, and it might just be an issue of how it's scripted and so on, but you've got to bear in mind a, that Vera is a buffoon, that's how she's been portrayed all this time, and B, she's obsessed with her animal kingdom next door, and she's not looking at this through the prism of humans. She's looking at this as if she was talking about, like, parrots and gnus cohabiting. That's how you're supposed to take it. You're not supposed to accept that this is an actual properly thought-out well-expressed viewpoint. It's nonsense, and it's in keeping. But with Vera's her expressing it calmly. She's not doing it in her full-blown silly voice. I don't think it gets a laugh. After Arthur gets quite angry at all this, it would change the way you looked at one of your friends if they came out with that. And it's 1984. Do you think we'd be that surprised if this was 1974? I think, in all honesty, I think just because of the precise wording, I think it's that word species that actually is the problem. So I think, actually, if this was a view that was being expressed by somebody in Man About the House, I think it would still be as jarring. Because I think it's just that particular word. Okay, so we've established that we're not a couple of raging lefties. We've waffled a lot to make sure that we cement that impression. Time for me to get on my hobby horse about the treatment of Southeast Asians in British sitcoms. Nigel's girlfriend from Hong Kong doesn't get any lines, and I don't think she even gets a credit. Now, this is the thing, because what people watching the episode on drama didn't see is that Arthur's little sort of monologue about how we've got to get rid of these sort of tags, we've got to get rid of these very, very strict labels because this is just causing problems and we should be much, much more laid back about this and there are two people that would love, you know, what the hell are we getting upset about? That's not to downplay that, but what you wouldn't have seen on the edit on drama is that that is actually in its own way the setup to the punchline at the end of the programme. Now, it doesn't devalue it because 
we're still left with the impression that Arthur is, is okay with it and you know there's no big problem going on here but when Martin Clunes comes in with his girlfriend and introduces her from Hong Kong on the version on drama it just that's us it's as if oh that Nigel he's all he's always out with the ladies and what have you always got himself a new girlfriend now bloody hell but actually the punchline is Arthur's reaction which is battle now actually he does finish more than one episode like that but of course the setup is that he's just been arguing for harmony amongst us all and then suddenly he sees Nigel with his Hong Kong girlfriend and it's like oh bloody hell you know I can't quite tell where the point of view is you know what we didn't mention the opening titles with that out of tune hesitant version of there's no place like home the song being played and then a picture falls off the wall and the audience laughs and there's that faint feeling that it is mildly satirical of the ideal vision of family life it's all gone wrong all that stuff expressed in that sentimental old parlour song and the the show never quite commits to a tone because it is actually quite cosy it's not really a satirical barb about family life it's looking at family life going wrong going, what are they like and in this None of them's being the Alf Garnet, where so saying this is a point of view, and you can tell which side we're all supposed to be on. I don't think it's nuanced to sort of say, well, look, these are just the points of view that are held by people, and it shouldn't come as a surprise that somebody we find lovable and bumbling will also think things that might not be shared by people. It's sort of like, let's acknowledge that that wasn't entirely the right point of view to express. Okay, right, well, we'll get to laugh. That's what we believe right now. It doesn't really seem to have an identifiable point of view. And again, it's not just in the writing, it's in the way it's staged. And because we then hit in with our jolly Ronnie Hazelhurst version of the opening theme. There aren't any moral complexities in Terry and June. And there are moral complexities in other shows. And this isn't either that's i think one of the reasons it might feel jarring in places you're the one who raised the issue and now you're trying to put it away before we've actually had a proper look at it but vera's a nasty piece of work i don't quite understand still why it's something which is introduced in the last six minutes of the episode because there's not as far as i recall there's not actually been any hint of this earlier on it's not like they were alluding to it uh, building up to this point it really does feel like you know this has been stuck on in actual fact, you know, if you wanted to re-edit that episode for commercial TV, you could just end it with Vera and Trevor going off to presumably enjoy a bit of the other, as the implication is. Call it quits there. I think this is probably, we've spoken a few times about lines of dialogue that get cut and the reasons why they get cut nowadays and so on. And this is probably the most jarring example of something. And I agree, it feels out of place for 1984. And I still think that it would feel out of place even earlier, just because of the precise phrase, the way it's put across and so on. Right, we've dealt with the controversy. I think we've mentioned everything. I did not, um, Paul becoming a car salesman because uh, Arthur says something about private enterprise. We know where uh, Arthur's vote goes, which is sort of unusual. I'm not so sure. I, think I don't know, isn't, isn't it slightly been... unusual to know how a sitcom character would vote? Do you not think that he... I think that he might have flirted with the Alliance. I think he'd be a Conservative voter, but I'm not so sure that he would have been so hot on overt Thatcherism. There's a topic to handle sometime then. Maybe we could do that closer to the election. How do sitcom characters vote? 
That is a good idea, actually. Yes, we'll do that. To conclude on No Place Like Home, it would be remiss if we did not mention The Greenhouse, which plays more of a starring role as the series go on. The Greenhouse is something which is alluded to early on, but then I think it's is it around about sort of say three and four, thereabouts, we see it for the first time. It would be unfair to suggest that we have a propensity for, say, going off on tangents coming up with whimsical alternative storylines and so on but the scenes with Arthur and Trevor in the greenhouse they were the points where I was sort of most thinking right the scope for like a whole sort of second screen experience here you know press a red button now and to hell with all the RG budgets <laughs> going on in the household let's just see Arthur and Trevor on the sherry in the greenhouse and there is an episode I think it might be the first one of series 4 where that's how it ends they go out to the greenhouse, they get arsehold on their homemade sherry, and it ends with a shot of them dancing around on the inside of the greenhouse, and you can't quite make out what's going on, and it did remind me a little bit of a Derek Jarman film that I stumbled across <laughs> on Channel 4 once. Now, <laughs> I bet that's not anybody's sitcom club bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> ah yes, the old Derek Jarman mentioned we all saw that one coming. Well, I was finding more and more that I just wanted to see the two of them get more and more inebriated and I really didn't give a shit what was going on in the household. All these all this domestic cobblers, all this back and forth arguing boyfriends, girlfriends, all this, oh bloody hell. Just just leave them all to it. If you want to watch that, watch BBC One. But go over to BBC Two now and just watch the two of them dancing around with their trousers on their heads. Why not? Where does No Place Like Home fit on the endings list? How do we categorise the finish to the series? I can't remember how it ended, but I'm gonna say probably unacknowledged. Okay, we haven't seen the final, final, final episode because there was a Christmas episode of 1987 that we've not yet seen, so we can't officially categorise it. But the final episode of the regular season five, this goes into the shoebox labelled Hero Storyline. We've had this storyline before, and in this case, it's Arthur, he's... But what was it he did? He followed a bank robbery or something, wasn't it? Um, somebody was nicking some stuff from a supermarket... And I don't know if he bumped into them or... He did something to make the robbery not go according to plan. And this also, you can categorise this as why not just tell the truth? It's so much bloody simpler. It's I think it might have been DCT mentioned before the Faulty Towers episode, the anniversary. Why doesn't Basil just tell the guests look, I was keeping it a secret from... Sybil, and she got upset and she walked out. There was no reason, there was no good reason why he couldn't just have said that. But, of course, the good reason is that then you would have a plot. So, you've got this situation in this episode here. Why not tell a better lie? Somehow he comes back from the supermarket with a box full of provisions, and he finds that some of the money that was being stolen from the supermarket has fallen in. He's got a few thousand quid at the bottom. And... He's not happy with how the supermarket dealt with his heroism. I think, doesn't he feel that they've not given him enough praise or something? Didn't they give him, like, a Jelly of the Month Club voucher or something like that? So he decides, well, that's it. That's their attitude. I'm going to keep the money. And then they discuss things back and forth. Oh, you can't keep the money. Oh, why not? Why can't I keep the money? Oh, you shouldn't keep the money. And then it's suddenly decided, well, you can't take it back now. It's too late. It's like, you found the money in the bottom of a box. 
So you can go in up to two, three weeks later and say, I actually hadn't got to the bottom of the box till just now. God, what a turn up. Um, there's some money here. Been sitting there for the last however many periods of time. No, he has to somehow try and sneak it back in. Right? And then he stitches up another future Waiting for God star who's now part of his family. Yes, that's right. Yes, because himself, he's buggered off. And now you've got this other fella. <laughs> The one who plays Graham Crowden's son. Come on, we've all got the IMDb. Okay, final thoughts then. No place like home. What do you reckon? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Thumbs in the middle because for some reason I don't like it and yet for some reason I feel bad about sticking the knife in because it feels like I'm... Ah, Robert Robinson. It was in an obituary program about Robert Robinson they were talking about his attitudes to things. And somebody mentioned he got angry at mention of the phrase the rat race. He said, that's no way to talk about people's honest toil. And it's a bit stuff like this, stuff like Terry and June, which is cosy and middle class and middle brow. And yet for some reason, I don't feel like dismissing this saying this is prol feed or bourgeois feed. This is just horrible, cynical trash made by people who don't care what they're doing. Don't feel like that's the situation. Now we have a, a generation of middle-aged people who grew up being snotty, sarcastic, dismissive sixth form as I would kind of like a bit more Arthur Crabtree confusion at popular culture. That kid from Metal Mickey, he's the pattern for all adulthood now. <laughs> he's not responsible now for that. Now that's all come club bingo card. Flaming kid from... Hang on, you mentioned... You mentioned How about Gaunt? House! What in the wide, wide world of sitcom are we talking about next week, live and exclusive, on the sitcom club, available at sitcomclub.com? We're going to talk about the one series wonders of 1988. Normally when there's a time capsule to be opened, DCT is the person to crack it open and examine the contents with Mooncats. But these are not just bound by year, they're bound by something very specific. There seem to have been quite a few shows that started and ended in 1988. There's a lot of stuff being thrown out there that doesn't stick. And we're going to be looking at three or four examples of shows that flared up like a beautiful firework and flared out like a beautiful firework that has done its job. We're going to be looking at things that did not continue past their first series that for some reason all started in 1988. It's done its business. This is possibly the first organic episode of the sitcom club because this is one that we didn't really plan at all. It so happened that in the course of watching various programmes, including one which... I have a deep-seated resentment and animosity towards for reasons I'll explain next week. It just so happened that this year, 1988, just kept on coming back and back and back. In the meantime, if you've got anything for us, be it a request or a little bit of information or any observation on the show today or any of the past shows, get in touch with us. We're on Twitter at The Sitcom Club. And as we mentioned before, our lovely, all-new, all-improved, sitcomclub.com where you can listen to all the previous shows and you can even leave comments on them now. Don't leave comments. You can if you wish. Don't. Don't. No, don't. Sorry. Right. Right. We want to hear no. back. Nobody. The, the lower half of the internet. I don't like it on sites I do use. I'm not going to like it on sites that I'm also supposed to moderate. Keep getting emails of spam comments that I'm supposed to yay or nay. I, I, I will take care of that. Don't worry about that. We want to hear back from people who've got views on... Not on your Nelly, for example. It's an area which has not been discussed in full on the internet. Certainly in the bottom half so far. Anyway, 
You've been Ocho. I've been Mooncat. And this has been, if I may say so, the Sitcom Club. <laughs>